Now, this morning we begin uh, what is going to be six weeks of sermons on the topic of marriage. And some of you might be asking yourself right now, you know, what does this have to do with me? Um, But for our little participation, raise your hand if you either are married, would like to be married, or or know somebody that is married. (laughs) Yes, that's almost everybody. Um, You know, we're we're looking this morning at, and starting out looking at the biblical concept of marriage. In the morning, uh, during our our morning uh, worship, we'll be looking at understanding the theology and the design of marriage. What does the Old Testament have to say about it? What does the New Testament have to say about it? Um, What does marriage look like in today's society? Uh, Hopefully providing some hope for what marriage can and ought to be. And and we're not doing this, and believe me, I'm not teaching all of these on marriage, fortunately for you, Uh, but we're not doing these because Randy and I say that we have the best marriages. Now, I can't speak for Judy and Megan, but we've talked extensively, Randy and I, about how we do not have the best marriages. Um, And he's actually even told me I'm not allowed to use any examples from my own marriage unless I pass that through Megan first, and she's not going to let me share all the good stuff, right? So um, you're you're not going to hear a whole lot about us saying this is what you ought to do because this is what we're doing. Um, But in addition to our time of Sunday morning, again, we'll have these evening sessions, love and respect. This is the nuts and bolts, the hands-on, the practical things of marriage. Now, we did this, um, it was probably around 10 years ago, uh, right after I first got here, and the two comments that I remember hearing uh, from people were, one, why couldn't I have done this 10 years ago? Um, and the other one was, I need to do this every year to help me remember the things that I've learned. Uh, so again, if, if, if love and respect is something you haven't signed up for, you didn't put your name, you would like to come, check it out uh, this evening starting at 5 o'clock. Uh, we'll be over there in the Cooper House. Um, and it's particularly strong in the area of communication between men and women, which if you, if you look at the statistics, the leading cause of divorce uh, consistently is failure to communicate. So this is really strong in that area. So in the morning we get the theology, in the evening we get the hands-on, practical. Uh, here we'll be answering the questions of, of why and what, and in the evening we'll be getting the question of how. You know, so consider this sort of a foundation, a building block for your biblical worldview altogether. Um, and again, you might be looking at me thinking, what does he know about marriage? I've been married longer than he's been alive. Uh, and you're right. And a lot of you probably have uh, wisdom and insight from me, and I would welcome that. Just please do it in a private setting where I'm not publicly humiliated. Um, just pull me aside. So and again, this is not marriage advice. This isn't three easy steps to the world's best marriage. Uh, this is developing a biblical idea, a biblical view of what God designed marriage to be. And let's also be clear that, that while the importance and view of marriage in today's society may be changing around us, and we'll, we'll address that specifically more in a later date, um, it's also real, important to realize that very few societies throughout history have been consistently in line with what the Bible teaches about marriage. Very few societies. So it's not as if, well, if we lose this, then, then everything's gone. No, not at all. Here's, here's a quote from Socrates 
talking about marriage, he says that by all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) You know, even when we look at the history of God's people, the history of the Israelites, all the way up through today, they have rarely been more than just a little bit consistent, occasionally obedient about God's design for marriage. From the beginning, we see deception and infidelity and polygamy and incest and so much more. We see all sorts of the problems that exist today. They've existed from the beginning. The way that God's people have both thought about and practiced marriage have rarely lined up with what God has taught about marriage. Now listen to this wonderful marriage vow as written in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence, and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee, and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Now, doesn't that sound amazing and rich and like the type of marriage that you would like to have? Well, remember, this is coming out of the Church of England, whose very founding was based upon the, upon the fact that the king wanted to annul his marriage with his wife. And it created his own entire denomination where he was the head of the church. So I'd not say that we're waging a war against our culture or a war against our society when we talk about marriage, but we are in a fight to rediscover and reclaim God's original design for Christian marriages. And we are willing to wage a war for the state of our marriages. You know, this isn't a battle against society as much as it is a battle perhaps against our own penchant for sin and selfishness. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. So if we are going to engage in a fight, let us fight because we know and love God's design for marriage and what it ought to be and what it can be. Not that we're ever going to attempt to beat someone over the head with God's definition of marriage, but we would like to offer hope that this can be something greater than you could possibly think that it could be. Uh, So this morning, we will, in fact, start in the very beginning, which is always a very good place to start. Genesis chapter 1. You read it in your worship folder. I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I will ask you to turn there, uh, as we're going to reference Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. So we enter into the creation account midway through the sixth day. If we, if we read in our worship folder that God said after he made all these creatures that it was, what? 
It was good, right? That God creates everything pretty much that has been made. And how did he make it? Well, he speaks it into existence, out of nothing, ex nihilo. So God said, and it was, and everything was good. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the earth, the animals, the fish, and the sea, everything that there was, God spoke, and it was. Now let's go back to Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Now God creates man. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, Genesis 1 and 2 shows us that from the very beginning that marriage was something that God designed. This was his idea. He's the architect. And the command here given in Genesis 1 uh, simply to be fruitful and multiply, it has a higher and deeper purpose than simply just populating the earth that God just created. That's just simply a part of it. Now, with any design or piece of art or, or, or great work of architecture, anything like that, um, any masterpiece of, of literature or music, it would be intellectually dishonest to infer meaning onto something without first trying to understand what the designer, what the creator had in mind when it was created. Uh, Back in the fall, in November, Megan and I had this incredible opportunity to um, take a 10th anniversary trip as part of Randy's grant. And and we spent part of our, we, we got on a plane, we flew to Paris. And the first, second day we were there, we went and visited the Louvre. Now, have any of you been to the Louvre before? Okay, it is uh, quite simply um, huge. Okay, there's not much else to describe it. When you think when you when you think about it beforehand, you might think well. Now you might think of Da Vinci Code when you think about uh, the Louvre. Uh, you might think of the Mona Lisa. But I mean, the place is literally just gigantic. It's something like 652,000 square feet of exhibition space. Okay, the Mona Lisa is about the size of this piece of paper um, in an area that's 15. Acres, so that's like from this corner here down to the Annie Mertz building over to the next street all the way back down to uh, Lincoln. That's how large the Louvre is. So to, to fully appreciate and understand, not only is, is there 15 acres, 652,000 square feet of exhibition space, there are 35,000 pieces of art on display at any given time. Okay, I did some, some poor math, and I, I calculated that in order to see everything, even just to look at it for a minute, you would have to spend 583 hours in the museum. Okay, you can go and keep going and keep going, and you'll never see the same thing twice because it is so large. Now, if you're going to a museum like the Louvre, and you don't know anything about what's inside of it like we didn't, You have to have somebody that knows not only where things are, but also that knows a little bit of the history and some of the backstory behind the artwork. 
And you can, you can go through and, and run and see kind of the, the, the three or four big things everybody goes to see, Venus to Milo and Mona Lisa and the, the Nike wings, um, and you can see it really quickly. You could race through it, and you can sort of appreciate the beauty for, for a little bit of what it is, but without taking a moment to stop and to pause and to consider and to learn about what the artist had in mind why these things were so important. What was it about even that period in time that these works of art were created? Well, then you'll, you'll never understand. You can never fully grasp it. Then the Mona Lisa is just some overhyped piece of art hanging on a wall. And you'll be there, and there'll be a person that's standing next to you that's literally staring at one painting for hours trying to comprehend it, and you can rush by without having any clue in the world of what you've just seen. Okay, that's a little bit of what we're going to be doing when we talk about marriage. Okay, we're not going to rush through it. You don't have to know God's intentional, his intention and his design to fully appreciate, or to, to appreciate and to understand marriage and to think that it is a good thing. But in order to fully appreciate what it is that he's done, you have to get a clue about why he designed it and what he designed it for, what is the purpose. So we're going to be looking at this thing that God designed. And if we read and believe the scriptures, we see that from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God explains and lays out marriage. So what do we find here in Genesis 1? Well, let's start with the creation of man and women themselves. It says that God created both man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Now, what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? Now, there's all sorts of suggestions and ideas that people have as as what it it means that man is created in God's image. Image. And does it mean that man looks like God? Does it mean that because man can stand on two legs and, and communicate verbally, does, is that what it means to be created in God's image? Does it mean that, you know, because we have personalities that we're created in God's image? Well, I'm, all of those things your cat can do. Well, maybe not your cat, but somebody's cat, you know, can do that, right? Um, is it the image of God, the fact that he created man to rule over and subdue creation? have dominion over the animals. Well, that's part of it. But to get a a fuller, a deeper understanding, you have to flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says this, that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into men's heart. It's so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, God has placed eternity into the heart of men. God created man and woman with a soul, with the ability to know God and to love God and to be loved by God. This is what separates man from beast. And God even created Adam and Eve differently in a different way than he created the rest of creation. If you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 2. This is on like page 2 probably for you. So Genesis 2, starting in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now let's skip on down to verse 18 here. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, after every other day in creation, and even in the midst of day six, God looks over his creation and says that it is good. But then after God made man of forming him of the dust, breathing into him his breath of life, implanting him with the soul, we see that something is not good. You know, what is not good? It is not good for man to be alone. Now, why does God understand that it's not good for man to be alone? Well, it's because that God has experienced perfect relational harmony from before the beginning began, as we read about in John chapter 1. You know, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are present together in creation. They have this perfect relational union that they experience, perfect love, perfect relationship. And so God sees Adam alone, and he understands it's not good for man to be by himself. So God then takes, has a little parade and parades all the animals past Adam in order to find a helper fit for him. And as he does this, Adam is naming the animals. He's giving them some type of name about their form or their function, uh, something distinct about them. And there's nothing worthy. There's nothing that would fix the problem of man being alone. See, there's nothing that can fix this whole, this need for love and relationship that Adam has. We attempt some of the same things today, trying to fill the holes in our lives with all these other unworthy things. Things that might not even be necessarily bad in themselves, but things that are incapable of filling the the void of loneliness. But just like in the garden, nothing can fill that void. And so God again creates in his image. And he makes something so perfect that when Adam wakes up from his sleep, he can hardly withhold himself he can hardly believe what there is standing now before him he cries out this is bone of my bone and, and, and flesh of my flesh yes this is what I've been seeking all along and so woman actually is God's final act of creation you know if, if any of you is the youngest or knows someone who's the youngest child you're familiar with the well you know mom and dad waited until they got it right and then they stopped with me 
you know? That's kind of what happens here. And now, putting the pieces back together, we go back, going back over to Genesis 1.31, we see, And now God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It wasn't just good, now it is very good. And there's evening, there's morning, the sixth day. So God takes what is not good, and he turns it into something that is very good. Now, don't get me wrong, marriage is not God's attempt to, to correct a mistake that he made in creation, but it is, in fact, the culmination of God's creation. Uh, Ray Ortland says that Genesis 1 and 2 honor marriage as nothing less than the crowning glory of the creation of the universe. Not just the world, the crowning glory of the creation of the universe. So why is this so very good? Why is this so important? It's because there is now a helper fit for Adam because it wasn't good for him to be alone. Now the word here that scripture uses is the word helper. Now does this imply some type of inferiority? Well, of course not. Absolutely not. How does Jesus describe the Holy Spirit in John chapter 15? Verse 26 he says, But when the helper comes whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And Moses even names one of his sons in Exodus 18, Eleazar, which because God was his helper. So helper, the term here, this is not a derogatory word. This is not some type of uh, designation of inferiority at all. And it could not possibly be that because God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are given this name in relation to us. You know, creature is not greater than creator. And it almost seems unnecessary to add this, but we see throughout history that men and sometimes women have used these verses to uh, lord themselves over women, to discriminate, to mistreat, to abuse, to objectify. They use these verses out of context. Here's a Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, says this. He says, the woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Not to be trampled upon, but to be equal with, to be protected, and to be beloved. So women was not created as property for man. He was not uh, to treat however he wanted, but as a suitable helper, as a final partner that could, he could now cherish and appreciate because of what God had done when parading through all these things. He now like God, could have a relationship with an equal. And so then after Adam's declaration of joy, we see how this marriage partnership is designed to work going forward. Look back at verse 24 in chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We don't know exactly who said this phrase here. If it's Adam, uh, well, he didn't have a father or mother to leave. Uh, maybe it's God, it's Moses as he's writing this. We do know that Jesus references th- these particular verses when he is asked a question about God's view on divorce. And if, you have a, if you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus was always so good at taking somebody's question about something off topic and turning it around to explain some deeper or greater truth that he wanted to explain. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, 
Jesus gives us God's design and intent for what marriage is supposed to be. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, what is God's design for marriage? Jesus gives it to us right here. We see it in Genesis chapter 2. From the beginning, God creates them male and female for the purpose of creating this inseparable union between a man and a woman where God takes one plus one and we get one. The two become one flesh. See, these are the divine directives. A man shall leave his father, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one, fe- one flesh. As my grandmother-in-law likes to say, to leave, cleave, and weave. Have you ever heard that before? To leave, weave, and cleave. And this is a covenant instituted by God. He said what God has joined together. And in fact, God performed the first wedding ceremony right there with Adam and Eve. You imagine, Adam, do you take this woman? Yeah. It was pretty quick. And it's not just between man and woman, but it's between God as well. It's this covenant. It's, it involves all three parties. It was created from the beginning, and it was also created to last for all time. As Ray Ortland points out, he says that marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible. In Genesis 1, we see that the world was created for Adam and Eve to inherit and to steward and to enjoy. You skip all the way to the very end. In Revelation chapter 21, we see the new heavens and the new earth are created so Christ and his bride, the church, can inherit and steward and enjoy it. So marriage is there in the beginning and it's there in the ending. And it's given to us as a lasting picture of what the relationship is like between Christ and his church. See, it helps us to understand the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus left the Father. He bore the sin of humanity so that he could be with us forever. Leave, cleave, and weave. It's right there in the gospel. So what should love look like in marriage? How does Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her. Jesus gives us this incredible picture of marriage from the beginning in order that we could somewhat understand Christ's love for us. And as we live marriage out ourselves, as we understand this concept, it better helps us to understand God's love for us. A marriage following God's design, however imperfectly, demonstrates the love of Christ for all of us. So that's what we'll be talking about for the next five weeks now. 
God's design for marriage. Why is this so important? He left the Father, held fast to our sins so we could be with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your design for creation and for that, that, that nothing you created was on accident. And Lord, as we dive deeper into the topic of marriage, Lord, may you open our eyes. May this be something that would not only help us in our personal lives, but this would help us in our spiritual lives. That we could fully and more deeply understand your love for us through your son, Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.